Wasabi anime, sugoi desu ne. The views and opinions expressed during Convention Nerds are solely those of the personalities, hosts, and or guests appearing on the broadcast and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Green Mustard Entertainment Inc. or any other agency, organization, event, partnership, employer, or company. Ladies and gentlemen, and we are back at our next episode. What is this? Is this episode seven? I'm losing track. Ken, three more till I get a green screen, Tom. Three more. Three more. Three more till Ken gets a, a green screen. But welcome to the seventh episode of Convention Nerds. For those of you uh, joining us for the first time, Convention Nerds is our weekly show uh, where we talk to convention professionals uh, in the industry of pop culture, anime, comic books, etc., about operating and running their events. Uh, it's an idea I came up with uh, seven years ago. Uh, when I helped start Project Anime for Anime Expo, and uh, as a byproduct of the fact that I started an anime club in 2001 that eventually has become a business uh, and a brand as Wasabi Anime. Uh, when I started Wasabi Anime as a club, uh, I started going to conventions with my club and walked into a show called JCon, where I uh, stumbled into a Transformers panel and promptly started correcting every person at the head of that panel because they were wrong most of the time, and one of the hosts of that panel was my business partner and friend, Ken Joy Snackpants Nabby, and you can pick up that part of the story. Now, you know, Tom, I wasn't just part of the panel. I was running the panel, and what's hilarious yes. is that you, you realize the entire convention was not being, there was nothing happening because all of the major decision makers were sitting up at that table at the time, but what year did you start that club, Tom? Well, yeah. uh, I started Wasabi Anime in August of 2001. Okay. I thought I heard an earlier date in there because I took over a club in 96. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tom and I have been doing this 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 fiasco known as anime fandom for quite a while. Yeah, Tom is uh, is the resident subject matter expert on all things Transformers, as, is, as he has reminded me time and time again. And we've been immortalized in comic form regarding our, our knowledge of Transformers. And yes. that'll be a story for another day. We'll do a special BotCon episode one day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're really excited. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we are uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, those of you that follow conventions, yep. uh, we try to track conventions, uh, you know, that have attempted to happen and, and are happening in some cases. Uh, those of you that know of me or follow my blog back in June, I covered the first pop culture event that, that pushed its way through in June of this year uh, to kind of unfortunate results. Uh, but we've seen a learning curve happen as yeah. more and more shows have happened. But we haven't had a, a large-scale show, like a 10,000-person-plus, actually pull it off. And uh, up until three weeks ago, we thought we were going to see that happen in the form of L.A. Comic-Con in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, when we were reaching out to speak to the team there, it was still happening. And it's not now, but we're going to get to that a little more. But uh, I want to welcome Chris Demolin, right? I'm saying this right? You pronounce it however you like. Uh, Chris Smith, Jones, <laughs> Brown, uh, from LA Comic-Con. And with that, uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your involvement with LA Comic-Con? And then just kind of a, a brief synopsis of the history of the show. Sure. Um, well, I, I, I run the parent company, which is called Kamikaze Entertainment. So I'm the general manager of the show. I've been doing that for about two and a half years, but I've been involved with the show since 2012, which was the year after it started. I okay. was working for a company called Advanced Star, which was a big trade show company. And I ran a bunch of large uh, B2B shows. I ran a, an apparel show called Magic and Licensing Expo for those of your listeners that are in the licensing industry. I also ran the um, Progressive Motorcycle Show, which was a consumer show. And, and one of the early investors in, in what was at the time called Stanley's Kamikaze Expo, which started in 2011 in LA, was an old business associate of mine. And he introduced me to the team that had founded the show, and I loved the idea of it. And so Advanced Star um, acquired half the show and came on as a partner and helped them run it for a number of years. So really, other than the very first show in 2011, I've had one role or another um, around the show. Now, you said it was originally, it was like Kamikaze and Stanley's Kamikaze. Can right. Uh, explain a little bit about the evolution of the, the right. brand and the name there. No, it's a great story. The show was actually started by three siblings who grew up in Southern California and always used to go to San Diego Comic-Con. And um, as it got harder and harder to get tickets, there were two years in a row where they couldn't get in. And they were so annoyed that their response was to say, let's start our own show. So in mm -hmm. 2011, um, they put together some friends and in the basement of the LA Convention Center, 
which they call Kentia Hall, but most people call a parking garage. Um, they started a show, <laughs> and through some terrific luck, they they managed to get um, Stan Lee as one of their guests because he was local in LA, and they knew someone mm -hmm. that knew him. Stan came, and he loved the team. He loved the energy. Um, he became a partner in the show, and so what was originally Kamikaze Expo became Stan Lee's Kamikaze Expo. Uh, mm -hmm. And then over the years, that's um, evolved. It became Stan Lee's LA Comic Con about five years ago. Um, when Stan sold his company, Pow, to Cam Singh, uh, they decided that they didn't want to have licenses, so we ended that relationship, and it became just Los Angeles Comic Con. So... Um, same core group of people that have been doing it. The show's grown and grown and gotten bigger and evolved over the years, but uh, was literally started the way a lot of great things are, which is, you know, three entrepreneurs that were annoyed by something and said, I can do this. And so they started the show. That's what we find oh, that many shows are started because somebody exactly. got annoyed with something else. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's almost the required DNA of any <laughs> anime convention started after 2005. Um, now, you mentioned Kentia Hall. Uh, just a little background on me. Uh, I worked heavily with Anime Expo at the LACC uh, from 2011 to 2013. Uh, and uh, we've done projects with them since then. But it's funny, the joke you made, because it, it literally is a direct quote that we've used all the way in Florida. When talking to them, they, uh, we did a project with them with signings of celebrities once. And they're like, oh, this next year, we want to move you to Kentia. And it's all this space. I'm like, oh, you forget I know the place. It's a parking garage. No, it's an event yeah. room now. No, that's 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 parking garage. Um, you know, the you see, content is great. Event room, anywhere, but. Yeah, but uh, it's still the basement. Um, but uh, you said around 2012, I know, and I was talking to Ken about it before the show. Right. Staff or people or some of the people you might have described or even yourself from Kamikaze came to one of our shows, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. For mutual contact, Joan and Vasquez, uh, we own InvaderCon, the Invader Zim convention. Sure. So right. uh, um, in 2012, I remember meeting some of the Kamikaze team. But as you know, in, in this industry, you, you start doing this too long with too many people. You do your best to remember, but uh, I, things get blurry with me. Um, so you guys have uh, running LA, uh, LA Comic Con for, so that would have been, well, this would have been 11. Here. This would have been your 10th. Uh, so 2019, you guys happened. What was what was your attendance that year? The last year we had a normal year of attendance. Our last year we had 123,400 people, which was a record attendance for us. Um, mm -hmm. wow. And um, it was a great show. I had come back and, and started running the show on a day to day basis in early 2018. So we had the show in 18 and then 19. Um, and it was, you know, we were. We were growing like gangbusters. We had some terrific talent. Uh, we are, had plans in place to expand to the whole convention center so that we could, uh, for those of you who know LA, there's one of uh, the big convention center, the South Hall is where we'd always been. There's a somewhat smaller hall, the West Hall, which is about 60% of the size. We were to expand to that. We were looking at esports and a whole bunch of other fun things to add and, um, you know, which looked great in the planning phases. And then those plans changed quite a bit over the course of the year. Um, oh God, yeah. So, but now, uh, yeah, so we said 120,000. Is that turnstile or is that uniques? That was, that was turnstile. So that was how many people, the way I always look at it since, you know, I talked to the exhibitors is that was how many people walked in the door either on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday who had a wallet or a purse who were fans who might buy something from. Them. Right. Oh, that so, makes sense. So that was, so some people came all three days, in which case they would count three times. Some people only came Friday or Saturday or Sunday. But it's basically yeah. anybody who, who came to shop, who came to browse, who came to be a fan. Mm -hmm. And Chris is coming from a, a background of B2B events and consumer-based shows. You know, the, the Walt Disney Company doesn't count somebody who buys a five-day pass as one person. Right. Yeah. That's a person going each day, and each day they count as a, as a body, which makes yeah. perfect sense for these kinds of shows. Right. Yeah. But, and and uh, we know all the different numbers. We know how many people bought tickets and what kind of tickets they bought and how right. many guests we had and how many press we had and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, and, and kids too. So, but we really try to focus on from the standpoint of communicating to the exhibitors or to a sponsor that might want to get involved in the show. We always try to focus on sort of adults who had money that wanted to spend it, that were fair game mm -hmm. to engage in something and be a customer. Oh yeah. Well, and it's, it's, and, and, and we talked about this on, on a couple of the previous shows, there is no, 
uh, standards right. of operation for reporting numbers. So, you know, it, it's kind of confusing in the marketplace. It gets even more confusing when you get to someplace, uh, especially like European shows, uh, you know, a show I know of a uh, deal with in France, um, you, uh, their numbers are uh, where we're, you're counting turnstiles to effect. They do the in and outs. And the problem right. is you go in, but if you come out, you have to buy another ticket. So it's it's no re-entry. Uh, and look, I know people that if somebody goes out and gets a sandwich and comes back, goes out to the bathroom and comes back and goes out to meet a friend and comes back, they just count it as three admissions. We don't yep. do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's, it's, it's it's unique people per day. It's, yeah, it's, it, go ahead. We traditionally see in, in shows that are generated by fan, fan engagement, those people who don't have a, a background in entertainers, they traditionally use the unique nose mentality versus when we start seeing people who have developed it from the consumer side or B2B side, B2B being business to business for all those viewers that aren't familiar with the jargon. Um, they traditionally use that, that turnstile numbers. And Tom and I, you know, Tom is universal. I'm Disney. Um, spent a lot of time looking at, hey, how are we going to do that? And at the time when we were running conventions, everybody was very big on unique noses. So we got measured everything by unique noses. But as you got deeper and deeper into it and you start engaging into businesses, into, into, into ads, you know, when you're trying to get those engagements from outside, they want a traditional turnstile number because that's what all the other type of events use. Yeah. Well, and I just looked at it like I... I didn't like, I don't like to count press because the press are there to work. They're right. not necessarily mm -hmm. fans. They're not necessarily shopping. They're not necessarily going to go see the SpongeBob panel that happens at 3.30. Right. So we don't count press because we don't think that that's what they're there for. We count anybody who's there to be a fan and have fun and participate. So a lot of our perspectives when we talk about conventions is, and, and we were talking briefly before the show, um, is from a theme park perspective here in Florida. Um, I was one of the original Jaws boat skippers at Universal Studios, um, went on to work into entertainment uh, and entertainment management for Universal. And on the side, back when you could still do this, uh, I worked as a performer and entertainer at the Walt Disney World uh, Resort uh, in different theme parks. Um, so everything we did as far as designing and working in shows when we started doing this 20 years ago was from a how do we do it at our theme park versus, you know, and how can we apply it to effectively, you know, consumer focused media trade shows? Uh, Ken, uh, you know, had, had a deeper, I had my number of years, but uh, Ken's father is actually a Disney legend uh, who was hired by Walt Disney and uh, was there and basically through the whole opening of the resort. Uh, okay. So we got to really a kind of approach it from two different perspectives. Um, and it's going to kind of segue into the conversation, uh, uh, which is the core reason we want to be here is, uh, you know, my other gigs I have with Wasabi Anime, Wasabi Anime as an entity is hired by conventions, pop culture cons, to basically, um, you know, fire and forget handle their anime programming piece. So we design, uh, you know, we decide on their guests, we help with booking the guests, uh, connections with J Japan, because I'm there twice a year, uh, and design all the programming. So we do fan expos events, uh, we do Gen Con, uh, Origins Game Fair, all these shows. Uh, and in doing so, a lot of my partners and I have been having conversations over the years or over the months of the world trying to open back up in order for us to run and operate events. And there's, you know, uh, the problem we're having now is the lack of consistency, as you know, you, you well know in your state versus my state. Um, the easiest piece that we all talk about is, um, hey, you're not allowed to, we don't want you to run movies in a movie theater. However, feel free to shove a couple hundred people onto an airplane for a four and a half hour flight to LA, as long as you all wear masks. And those two obviously don't sync up. Right. So in Florida, uh, for uh, you know anybody who's watching who doesn't know, we soft opened and went into opening our theme parks uh, back over the summer. And it was a, a thought out plan. The first one out of the gate was Shanghai. And uh, a lot of us watched the procedures they put into place. And I got, uh, I had the opportunity to go to the soft open for pass holders to the Disney parks before they open. And I've been back once or twice since then. I only go in the morning because I'm still paranoid about people. As soon as it gets busy, I'm gone. But the systems they put in place have been effective. Uh, there's, there's social distancing. 
there's a, a big emphasis on enforcement of, of, of masks. Uh, there's a, a very popular TikTok video of a, <coughs> excuse me, a guy who was going to make his big scene protesting and everybody got it on film and started posting it, but he was posting himself and how, how much he was like, uh, he's not going to wear the mask and was quoting the Bible. And he was all pumped up about the whole thing until they got him all the way up to guest services. And he saw the Orlando police department there uh, and realized that he was being trespassed and they read him his trespass. So uh, that's a bunch of lead in for the fact of in Florida, while we historically, historically do everything horribly wrong there are a couple things that we've been able to roll out correctly and theme parks seem to have been operating effective but that's been one of the challenges for you and your show is uh you know you guys haven't even opened theme parks yet so tell us a little bit about the kind of the conversations with the city and, and things that are going on there sure uh, one thing i want to add is like i i also i spent eight years at disney i was in consumer products but walked worked a ton with the theme parks guys and I think it's that that in the DNA of Disney is you start with the, the guest, right? And the guest experience and what's important to the guest. And then you work everything backwards to deliver that. And I think, you know, we were we look at this the exact same way. We we started from a point of saying we are never, ever, ever gonna do something that we think won't be safe. So we're gonna we're gonna work with the health officials, we're gonna work with the the LA Department of um, Public Health, the mayor's office. Um, they're all getting direction from the state and we're going to understand what the guidelines are and then mm -hmm. we're going to see do we think we can create a set of operating procedures that will allow us to run um, an event which will still be a fun con but will be safe and will be within those so so we started that process in in march or april mm -hmm. um, as soon as things shut down you know we kind of had a team meeting and a lot of people were just saying i guess we're done we're, we'll shut down for the year and what we that is, you know, our show's not till September. Nobody knows good or bad what's going to be going on by September. Let's at least start putting plans in place of how we pull apart all the pieces of a show from registration to ticketing to the to where and how you put things in the layout. Um, and let's start making certain conservative assumptions about what the guidelines might be. And let's see if we could build a show around that that would be fun and that would be safe. And so that's what we did for months, really, was... Um, taking that information, and eventually, as in California, uh, so restaurants and retail. Uh, we've got retail could open at 25% capacity. Restaurants could open at 25% capacity. Then we got the sort of four-tiered system, the purple, red, orange, yellow system, and we were, uh, we were in purple. And we said, if we stay in purple, there's no way that we can have a show. But what, what does red look like? Well, at red, retail can be open at 50%. Museums open back up at 25% at red. So we said, all right, let's see if we can embrace all of the guidelines of what red looks like and build a show around it. And so okay. that's what we did. We that worked with sense. the convention center um, and we, we literally pulled apart every single piece of the show of, from booking to talent. Most important thing was density. How many people in a convention center with 1.2 million square feet, if you're using these two halls, you know, how many people can fit there at 25% density? How would you do that? And how would you get them in? And so we just started making every change that was necessary to facilitate maintaining those health guidelines. And we just said, if we get to a brick wall that we can't plan our way over or through or around, then we're done. Um, and the fun part was we, we never did. We just got more and more creative. So like one of the things we did was we realized if we sold a ticket for all day long, we'd never be able to manage the number of people. So we split the days into two sessions. So we're going to have oh, two five-hour okay. sessions, a morning session, an afternoon session, and an hour in between where we could transition things and re-clean everything and bring in a whole new group of guests. And that allowed us to dramatically reduce the number of people that were there at any one time, um, but still over the course of the weekend accommodate anywhere from probably 50 to 60,000 fans. And mm -hmm. um, so it, it was that sort of an iterative process. And we worked with the mayor's office and the convention center and the um, LA Department of Public Health and just, and, and the challenge, and I'll wrap this up because I'm sure you have a bunch of questions about it, but the challenge was there were no guidelines issued as you right. know in okay. California for theme yeah. for events. And so we were, while we were waiting for those guidelines to come out and we were hoping that they would come out and we were hoping when they came out, the conservative plans we'd met would fit into them. We were still moving forward. Right planning an event, figuring out how we would do it, eventually putting tickets on sale for it, 
because as you know, you can't sell 60,000 tickets in three days. You have to give yourself yeah. time to figure all that out. But always acknowledging if the guidelines don't come out or if they come out and they preclude us having a, a show within the guidelines, we won't, we won't do it. Then we'll postpone. But we weren't going to give up um, just because it was hard. We were going to give up if it got to a point where we couldn't, we just couldn't do it. And that's, you know, what happened three weeks ago when, when the governor's office decided not to issue theme park and event guidelines, we just, we had run out of time. And at that point we had to push till the next year. That's one thing, Chris, you talked about, you're, you're going through all the guidelines. You're, you're basically jumping through all the hoops. Why you were jumping through these hoops, did you notice the hoops were moving? Were <laughs> things changed? I mean, honestly, yeah. dealing with, dealing with any type of government agency, um, that they, you know, they can change the rules as they see fit. Uh, did you feel that there was a, a desire for them to change the rules to prevent you from having the event? Or was everything staying fairly static and they were waiting for Sacramento to make some decisions? I mean, I have to say, honestly, all of our experiences with the, the mayor's office in Los Angeles and the LA Department of Public Health were spectacular. Okay, it's um, good to hear. They, okay. they were very open and honest. And, and I would ask them, I'd say, should we just stop? And they, and they said, you know, we honestly can't advise you because if the guidelines come out in September or early October, and if those guidelines say X, Y, Z, um, we do seem to be slowing. LA County does seem to be slowly moving from purple to red. And mm -hmm. if we get to red, and if your assumptions about X, Y, and Z are correct, then you, you could have a show. And if you do, we'll help you do it, but you're going to have to follow all the guidelines. And if you can't do it, you won't. So you know, the, the frustration, to the extent there was frustration, is that um, the governor's office did not then, and I still think does not, feel any sense of urgency to address the very real needs of these two industries in a meaningful way. And, you know, mm -hmm. in the state of California, theme park industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. Invention industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. There are thousands of companies and hundreds of thousands of employees who can't do what people at retail and restaurants are doing. Because what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we have these guidelines. Now we have to figure out if we can work within them. Right. We don't have guidelines. Right. And so it's basically sidelined thousands of companies and, um, and hundreds of thousands of employees who are just, they don't know when they're ever going to be able to go back to work because there have been no uh, meaningful guidelines given. And I, I say meaningful because a couple of weeks after we postponed there were some guidelines in California that came out for theme parks and they were so restrictive that, you know, Disney kind of immediately threw up their hands and said, this is, you know, I mean, I think Ken Potrock, who is an old Disney colleague of mine, who's now the president of Disneyland, um, basically said that these are, they're restrictive and unfair in that um, th there's almost no way, I mean, they couldn't even think about opening until it got to yellow and yellow's a year away. It was basically sort of like saying, yeah. Sorry, guys, you're going to be closed for a year. That's one of the big things with Iger walking away from the right. from the governor's um, advisory council, sort of going, okay, what the what the directions were. I mean, that was a, a clear indication for anybody that's been in the theme park industry for a while that it was really good. There was an impasse. It may not have been a communicated impasse, but there was some kind of impasse that couldn't be yeah. couldn't be approached. And, and I think Hot Rock's comment was, look, if you look at other industries, if you look, in fact, at the state of Florida and what's going on there at Walt Disney World. You can embrace science-based guidelines and translate them into health and safety procedures at, at significantly below your capacity and operate safely. And, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but I don't think there's been a single case of COVID that's been reported that was traced back to something that happened at Walt Disney World. And, and that was, to their credit, one of the early things the Orlando mayor made clear, because don't get me wrong, when they opened up, uh, when we opened up in Florida, there's a lot of pushback, especially because... Uh, again, if, if there was a spectrum of handling this, I, I, it's funny because California and Florida, are like there's probably a great place in the middle, but we're so polar opposites. Uh, our worst example being the fact that uh, right after everything happened, uh, our state pushed through that the WWE was a necessary business and was allowed to open up along with hospitals and stores. Um, but when we opened the theme parks, there was a lot of backlash, sure. but the mayor made it explicitly clear and he stood by that. And, you know, we haven't heard anything yet of the second they are able to trace a single case to any, to Universal, to Orlando, to any of our Central Florida theme parks. He's like, I have zero problem pulling the plug again. 
And yeah. you're absolutely right. I have 100% sympathy for those people who push back because, I mean, as I said, we there was never one second where we contemplated moving forward if we didn't 100% believe we could deliver a safe product that was also fun. Right. And and I and I think when you look at the science-based guidelines and then you translate them to how you operate a business, um, the fact is we we felt we there were probably 40 things operationally we were going to do differently at the show that had never been done before. And almost all of those were required to add up to an experience that, um, that would allow, we looked at every single traffic bottleneck that gets created in the course of having an event from the time you park when, after you arrive, right. getting through security to getting your badge, getting inside to waiting in line at booths, to going to get an autograph. We looked at every single bottleneck and we came up with solutions for them. Um, and technology was a huge part of that, using technology to help plan. And we weren't selling autographs. We were selling autographs in half-hour time increments right. so that we could manage the amount of people that were there at any one time to do it. You just had to think through the implications and figure out a way to spread out the, the, the people. To keep yeah, the Chris, you bring up a good point. The fact that, it, yeah, it's easy to go, okay, we're going to operate 25% capacity. But how you move that mob... Sure or you disperse that mob through each year, each year bottlenecks, ticket sales, parking, those lines. Every time when you look at a convention, you go, where is the bottleneck? Right. That's where your, where your issues are going to arise in a situation that requires social distancing. And a lot of people don't see that, that, that big picture approach to everything that's going on. Well, well, and and, and we, like can, we can point out, we just went to Disney when Shannon was there last week the most notable problem they're having, because it's not a perfect system, nobody has the perfect system, is just like I said, I we go in, in the morning, it's been a couple of hours, more people are showing up, I'm out of here. When all the people are showing up is when people like me are deciding to leave, and you do get that bottleneck of leaving and coming in at yeah. the entrance of all four of the parks. Right. Uh, is there a solution? No, but they're managing the best they can. Well, and so, we literally, I mean, we think about that, think of the size of a convention center, we had figured out a way that as we approached the last hour of any given session, we would start, we, we wouldn't start new activities on the right-hand side and we would start those people moving out. And literally the entire convention center was gonna empty in one direction and fill in one direction and we create enough space. So again, I, I have nothing but respect and sympathy and empathy for the people that were concerned because they don't do this for a living. I've been doing conventions right. for a living for 15 years. And, and they, they couldn't, you look at it from the outside in and you go, wait, they're going to have 60,000 people in one place over the course of a weekend. And I look at it and say, well, no, we're going to have six different tranches of 10,000 people. And here's how we're going to get them in. And here's how we're going to get them out. Mm -hmm. And when you spread them out over 1.2 million square feet, they actually have about 60 square feet per person, which yeah. is significantly more than the most conservative social distancing guideline anywhere. So I, I appreciated that without the new the details, they they just looked at it and said that seems crazy, but you know that was that would became the communication job right is to is to say well, here's why we think we can do it safely. Well, and it's not just theme park. I mean, and especially since March, we've seen a number, especially with the larger shows. Uh, I had a friend uh, on my social media who was eviscerating uh, Dragon Con. And it's because they're not, and, and this is a common thing, I'm using Dragon as an example, but there were a number of shows that had the same statements being made, which is, you don't care about your attendees because you're not canceling. And what people don't understand who don't operate in our businesses is it's not that simple. I can't just go, boom, you're right, let's do this. And, uh, you know, an example, we were talking about political ramifications locally. Uh, one of the shows that we own is a show called WasabiCon in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's at the convention center in that city. And we had the conversation March, April of what if, same attitude you guys had, but ah, uh, we're all the way in October, we'll be fine. And then when summer rolled around, the, the, the tone changed. And the problem we ran into is the Republican National Convention then decided to be in Jacksonville, Florida. So we were literally in the process of going, hey, we really feel we're now at the point that we have to move our show into 2021 just to operate safely with the resources we have. And the city was in a contradiction of, you know, people were telling us they agree with us, but they couldn't approve doing anything uh, and modifying anything because the R if the RNC could happen, we could happen. Right. And it took them finally canceling, like literally Friday they announced we're not doing it, 
Monday we have to change, but we started getting flack. And again, like Drango, you, you, you're irresponsible and it's guys, it's never that easy, but it, it's, you know, segue from that, you, you kind of hit what the core concept is, which is I want to take what you, you described as, Hey, and again, like I said, early on, I remember, cause when you guys, you know, made the announcement a couple months ago or, you know, so, six weeks or so ago, of, Hey, we're going forward. I remember earlier in the year when you guys say, Hey, we're looking at elaborate plan. And, and that's the stuff that, you know, I'm way into It's the purpose of the show. So which part of the convention center, the LACC, were you taking? Were you taking the whole space or which section of this LACC were you guys going to take? Um, everything. That was one of the decisions we made very really? early on was that in order to have enough room to do everything, we needed the entire convention center. And the, the staff sense, of the convention yeah. center, honestly, I've, I've been in the convention business for 15 years. I've done hundreds of conventions all over the world. The staff at the Los Angeles Convention Center, absolutely one of the best in the world. And yeah. they were partners from day one. And we sat down and said, if we're going to do this, you know, we, we, there's this giant hall. And in that hall, we would have all the exhibitors. We also had our main stage because we've always loved that uh, the energy of having the main stage right there. And we did all of our autographs. And we just said, it's never going to work. So we, we're going to take the main stage. It's going to get its own hall. We're going to take all the autographs. That's going to get its own hall. We're going to spread everything out. And so we literally um, had over a million square feet of space that was allocated to different things, plus um, about 400,000 square feet outside because we were going to do a lot of the queuing in order to have social distancing. A lot of the queuing was going to be outside. And, Where was uh, going to be the entranceway? Which side were you going to come in on? You, uh, well, it's actually interesting. For the morning show, you could come in on either side. For the afternoon show, you could only come in West Hall. And that had to okay. do with how we were right. sort of right. setting right. things up right. to be able to flow everybody out through South Hall and in through West Hall for the second show of the day. And so, okay. um, and so it, we, we tripled the number of uh, entry points we had with the uh, metal detectors and all that sort of stuff so that people coming in could oh, come yeah. in anywhere. But, but the registration was actually going to start on the West. And as you came in, we had three different queuing points that were um, to the right, in the middle of, and to the left of the West Hall so that we could deposit people closest to where they wanted to start the day. So instead of coming in for the day, you described you guys were going to do basically cycles. Um, it right. was, was going to be a two-day or three-day show when you did this? Three-day show, two sessions per day. So they okay. probably been five-hour sessions. So if you came at, um, you came at, you know, nine to two, and then we would be cleaning from two to three, and then three to nine. So it would be, um, okay. Um, so it would be that kind of five to six-hour sessions with a, with a one-hour break in between. And you could, okay. and you could buy a pass to both sessions, but if you did, you still had to leave. And leave what you clean. The other way. So you had six sessions total for the weekend. Correct. And approximately how many people were you going to try to get in per session? Uh, the, the maximum that we were going to sell was, we talked about this too much, I don't remember. I think we were going to sell up to 12,000 tickets uh -huh. per session. Uh, okay. Now, we wouldn't have sold out all the sessions, but we would have no. sold out the Saturday session. And we got to that by looking at the um, the density of the two main halls, which was the South Hall and the West Hall, and said, let's assume that everyone who comes is in one of those two halls. What is 25% density in those halls equal? Then we subtracted out all the exhibitors and the staff and the security and all that sort of stuff to get down to what that meant for fans. Then just to be extra careful, we dropped it another 25% just to give us- Oh, a wow. So, I love the like fact that you guys had the yeah. cleaning. Yeah. Okay, so six sessions. So theoretically, you could pull about 60,000 over three days, which is good. Right. Um, yeah. So you have 10,000 people in the building. Um, next question, the vendor's room. What did you do differently in order to accommodate COVID? So the main hall, the South Hall, is 350,000 square feet. As I said, normally we would have had maybe uh, 70,000 square feet of exhibits in there, plus a main stage that typically had had about 3,000 people watching what was going on on the main stage. So there was room for them um, mm -hmm. and all the autographs. So we moved the autographs out to a different hall. We moved the main stage out to a different hall. And then we, we capped the um, booths we were going to sell at 60,000 feet and then spread them out over the entire floor. So what that meant was two big cross aisles that were 36 feet wide. that wow. had mansions down the middle, so okay. 18 feet in either direction. And then every other aisle was 12 feet wide in one direction. So once you were in, there was there was you flowed in one direction. And a lot of could, flow, a lot of so flow. You could stop at the stuff, end yeah. and go out and go into a different yeah. aisle. But it basically what it did 
um, is, and we kind of looked at this on an average Saturday, um, when we're really packed, we might have 45 or 50,000 people in the hall. Mm-hmm. Now you're saying that the max was going to be between the exhibitors and the, and the fans, probably around 13, 14,000. So the density was literally like a third to a quarter of what it right. normally is, which we then meant, knew meant people would be able to get around much easier, right? There wouldn't be any of that, you know, oh, you right. feel like you're a sardine yeah. feeling that you get sometimes. Um, well, so we actually felt the guest experience would be much better because you could get to right go there. do all the things you wanted to do much more quickly and easily because you didn't have to work through those crowds. It, it, it's so funny. So just the side note of uh, Chris keeps, uh, you could tell you have theme park DNA because you're referring to attendees as guests, which is something we slip into all the time. Um, the uh, So apples to apples, how many exhibitors would did uh, LA Comic-Con have 2019 versus how many you would have planned for in 2020? We, I'm trying to think of 2019. We probably had around 600 exhibitors, um, somewhere between six and 650 in 2019. I don't remember the exact number offhand. And this year we probably would have had between 450 and 500. So okay. I mean, we had we had four over 400 companies contracted. And that's, you know, I wanted to make mm-hmm. one other point when we started out in the process, the very first thing we did is we surveyed our fans and we surveyed the exhibitors and we asked them, do you want us to try and have a show or not? If we can do a show that, that is safe and meets all the guidelines, should we try or not? And over 70% of the fans, we had a huge response, thousands, excuse me, thousands and thousands of responses. Over 70% of the fans and over 90% of the exhibitors said, yes, please, if you can do a show and do it safely, please do it. Um, because it's going to be fun, and for those exhibitors, it's their livelihood. And yes, so, right, um, yeah. So we part of it was, you know, we said that this was not, we were on a mission of hope. We were we were hoping that we were going to get guidelines in time. We were hoping that the conservative plans we were putting together would fit those guidelines. But we were also trying to speak to the hope of the exhibitors that they would have a chance to sell some product before the end of the year, and the hope of those fans that after what's been a crazy trying year for all of us, they might get to get out and in a safe way, have a little bit of fun. So it ultimately proved not possible, but um, if, by the end of the, of the process, that almost seemed beside the point. Like we, we really felt like we were, what we were doing, we were, do, we were being transparent, we were being honest, and we felt like we were doing it for the right oh, yeah. reason. And if it worked, it was great. And if it wasn't going to work, we said, okay, we'll move to next year. No problem. Yeah. Well, it's I, not, it's, go ahead, Ken. Yeah, I used to have a leader years and years ago that used to always tell me time and time again, hope's not planned. But you guys, Chris, you talked earlier before the call, non-binary thinking. And you very much going, yes, I have a plan and I have this hope as part of it. And that if I get my plan working, if I get my plan presented, if I get buy-in on my plan, that that hope I can then layer into it and make a successful event. And I think that, as you mentioned before, non-binary thinking is basically what you've layered into each piece of this this plan that you had for LA Comic Con. And I think that's what we all need going forward is, is you know, if all we're looking at is black and white, yes and no, mm-hmm. um, that we're going to have whole industries that are stuck in limbo forever. I think the question we have to be asking is, and what the government needs to support us with in terms of their guidelines, is how? How can we do this safely? Even if it's super slow and it's in six different increments over the course of two years, but how do we how do we work our way through this and take all the science that's available to us, translate it into operating plans for these different industries, and allow them to, to find a way to move forward um, despite this in the way that restaurants have, in the way that retail has, um, and, and I think the other thing you guys we're going to see a lot of is is the use of technology to enable and expand and enhance the live experience. Because there's a lot of people out there that no matter what we did, they were never gonna feel comfortable coming to the show. And, and we yeah. totally appreciate that and embrace that, but we were gonna have live streaming of everything so that if they wanted to stay home, they could still participate. We're gonna digitize, every single exhibitor was gonna be digitized into a digital store, which we're still gonna do um, so they could shop online. And so the technology is available for us to, to look at some of the things we do and find a way so that ultimately the, we're going to do everything we can to make it safe. But then mm-hmm. each of us as individuals have to decide, am I, 
do I want to do that? Am I willing to go be part of that? But if they're not, we still want them to have the fan experience. And so right. there's a ton of stuff we can do with technology um, that allows that to happen, even for the fan that you know has a pre-existing health condition or just doesn't feel safe going into a crowd of 10,000 people, which I get. And you're you're looking at part of that right now. I mean, you know, quite frankly, when we uh, we started the Wasabi Anime Twitch channel, it was because uh, our partnership with Gen Con. Gen Con has been streaming pieces of their convention uh, for the past three and a half years. And, you know, I'm neck deep in running anime programming for them. They literally have their streaming room upstairs from us. And for the past three, four years, they come to Canada like, oh, you should go upstairs and take a look at this. We go, oh, that's cool. And go down and run our Japanese cartoons. But now, uh, since we, this summer, they ran a very complex online presence and they use the, the anchor piece of Twitch because it's a delivery system they become used to and it, it's great for the interactive piece. So we just kind of, hey, this is working, we're doing it. And what you described though is kind of the discussion plan we have with some of our event appearances. Right. We literally have negotiated in our new contracts for 2021 that um, the way we work is we have billable hours and we say we will design X number of hours of programming for your fans that is top shelf anime Asian based pop culture programming and the new contracts now have and this is what we're paying you to do however as you design 50% of it minimum has to be pivotable or a uh, have the the build ability to stream in case a we can't happen or b in case we want to simulcast it right uh you know to fans because even when we did WasabiCon there was the conversation again we were doing we're all having the early planning conversations of Awesome. If we even if we do do this in October of this year, back when we thought it was a possibility, we would offer an absentee ba uh, badge. Hey, you can't make it to the show for X amount of dollars. You're going to get the the key swag. We'll get autographs from all of our um, uh, celebrity guests, and it's all going to be shipped to you after the show concludes. And we'll get you access to a special. Here's the panel with all of us. Like so, I, you're dead on in the conversations I've had elsewhere too. Of the direction we are now going is nobody nobody quickly is going to be comfortable going back to a show or not everybody is going to be very quickly to, to come back comfortably to a show so we have to plan for all of our fans and all of our attendees right whether they be the ones that are let's go straight ahead or not yet what can we create for them right. um speaking of and, and i brought up celebrities so going back to you know i want to make sure we use it we, we're, we're three quarters of the show so we talked about your exhibitors hall we talked about your space right. celebrities celebrity autographs photo ops what was the plan for that? Right. Um, so we, um, as I said, we moved, uh, we've usually had around 50 or 60 different celebrities on Saturdays in particular. So it's a very large area and there's tons of lines. We made the decision to move it into its own hall. Um, it was about a 25,000 square foot hall. And so again, working on the density guidelines, we figured out that we could probably have about 450 guests in there at a time. So what it was going to do is it was going to limit the number of celebrities. So the first thing we were going to do is we were going to have a, instead of having 60, there might be 15 or 18. Um, and um, we were going to do a couple of things. The, literally, some of the stuff in the hall was really fun in terms of trying to figure out, like for photographs, probably doing something along the line of having a, a plexi wall where the talent would be on one side, the guest would come on the other side, the picture would be taken from this direction. So you'd be in the same place at the same time and have a photo but there would be a wall between you. If, so we if you haven't seen, by the way, that photo is floating around the internet. A convention did that last weekend. Right. And so wow. some of that stuff, you know, we were kind of having a little bit of fun with. I think the biggest breakthrough was realizing that instead of selling an autograph or a photograph online, we would sell it by half hour increments because that way we could look at the max capacity of the room and we could turn it over every 30 minutes. Um, and so you were going to buy an autograph with, uh, you know, Zachary Levi, who was contracted to come to the show, you were going to buy an autograph that was between 9.30 and 10. But you would show between 9.30 and 10, you'd get scanned, it would go green, you could come in, you could then go in and get in line. And we had just the capacity in there to get through a half hour's worth of people. And if you had, if you were a 10 to 10.30 person, you came, you'd get a red light, you couldn't go in yet. So everything was sort of, we, we chunked everything down into what the digestible, if you will, groups of people were, and then designed all of the throughput and the systems that manage the throughput to be able to make sure that we could do that. Let's let's get to a detail here though. So I buy my autograph for Zachary Levi. It's I show up between 10 and 10:30. I have my ticket. They scan. Um, you know, to speak Disney, it's effectively sounds like a fast pass procedure. 
Um, you know, here's my Disney fast pass to meet Zachary Levi. I go in. <laughs> now I get into my space in the line. I walk up to the celebrity. Is there a distance in place? There's a plexiglass between us. How's that? We were going. We what we were working with each individual celebrity on what they're what they want to do. But it was, at a minimum, there was always going to be probably an eight to ten foot space. Um, mm -hmm. And then depending on what the celebrity was comfortable with, they might have plexi in front of them, and they would just be signing an autograph and handing it over. It was mm -hmm. up to the celebrity if they were comfortable having something handed to them to be signed and handed back. We would have staff to help with that. Um, so it was going to be individualized in terms of the level of, of uh, interactivity that everybody wanted. But there was going to be an eight to an eight to ten foot gap and probably a plexi wall um, for virtually everybody. And again, part of the, the limit in the in the hall is we had to allow every line had to be socially distanced. So you had to have at least six feet. Um, between the people waiting in line. So it wasn't okay. going to be this yeah. jam of people waiting to go in. Um, uh, it was everything it, was going to have space. It's funny because you mentioned the queue line uh, thing. And that was one of my first observations when I started going to these uh, smaller shows in Florida is, and then doing the comparison to Disney is when a lot of even businesses, I, you know, I find businesses doing the same thing. Businesses and conventions or trade shows here weren't thinking on the concept that six foot isn't linear and yeah. so there was there was literally a barbecue restaurant i went to in orlando uh after doing one of these things and the line was zigzagging and it was perfect six foot six foot six foot and i literally just brought i was like can i speak to the manager real quick i'm like just so you know i just came from disney to study this and you realize that yes you're right six feet but i'm standing here this person is now two and a half feet from me on the other side of the line yeah. And literally, like you saw the look of realization. So when people are thinking about what you're describing for space, now take that math of there is a gap and that takes up a lot of space, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and can I say, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a nerd in more ways than one. Because, you know, you always say you're going through geometry. I'm never going to need this. It's all pi r squared, right? <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. That every single person there had a, was wearing a, a, a steel hoop skirt. And the, yep. and the diameter of the hoop skirt was six feet. So that anytime my hoop skirt and your hoop skirt hit each other, we stopped, which kept six feet between us. And so mm -hmm. there was huge amounts of space that were lost just, you know, because when the circles come together, there's still a little triangle that's open or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it was, that's why we needed 1.2 million square feet of space right. to be able to move through 10 or 12,000 people safely. Wow. That's so, so we've talked about the, the space as a whole. We talked about your exhibitors hall. And with a guest, just I love the idea of you know fast pass. This is when you're allowed in, come in and leave. Um, your main event stage. How did you uh, how did you approach that? Right. So we moved it into an entirely different hall. Um, it's a 150,000 square foot hall. Um, we allocated a certain amount of I think we allocated 30 or 35,000 square feet to the stage and backstage so that that could be a space with separate green rooms so that actually people coming in in different groups. There will be like an A, B, and C green room. And so you would go to C. And when you went on stage, we'd clean that green room because the next person was coming into A and then B. So we needed space for all of that stuff. And then that allowed us to have probably around 2,500 people socially distanced um, in the remaining 120,000 square feet of that, um, of that hall um, and to have enough space to, um, to, to work with that. So it, depending on, on how it exactly worked out, there would have been probably... 1,800 to 2,000 or 2,200 people. Um, and we literally would have had X's on the floor throughout an entire 150,000 square foot hall, and basically mm -hmm. said, stand on the X. And um, uh, so people would come in and come out for that. We would, we would allow time for that. Um, and then that was, again, a big part of it was um, not just streaming for people who didn't want to come to the event, but we had worked it into our app that if you were on site and you were, you know, Frank Miller was, was coming to the show. If you were on the Frank Miller line, you were, it was time to get your autograph, but there was something on the main stage you wanted to watch. All you had to do was go to the app and touch it, and you could queue into the stream of the main stage, and you could watch what was on the main stage on your phone while you were waiting in the Frank Miller line, and it was happening in another hall. So we, we, it was, we wanted it to be a service for the people at the convention. If you had an afternoon pass, you had a digital pass for the morning and vice versa. So it was it was a way of, you know, if you were on site and you had five or six hours to do what you want to do, depending on what at exact time of day, you might be able to do two things at once. Um, and again, that was the kind of the fun we were having with the technology and the, 
um, and the streaming part of it is it opened up all of these opportunities to have a panel where we might have two people socially distanced in person and then two other cast members on the screen, but they're all talking live and at the same time. And it just opens up all these possibilities that we'd never really thought about before, you know, because we didn't have to, where a guest would say, well, I'm, I'm in Japan shooting that weekend, I can't come. And that would be like, oh, I guess that means you can't be there. Well, no, now it means if you're willing to be up at the right time of day, you can, you can uh, be digitally part of it. It's funny when you just described that, I literally had an old man moment of back in the day when Ken and I were working on shows of, uh, we had the discussion of, hey, here's our main events room with our stage and presentation. We need to look at devising an overflow room and how far technology has come from these long conversations of if we run coax cable, what's mm -hmm. the signal degradation and can we uh, run yeah. it across? <laughs> right. Right. Now it's like, oh, just take out your cell phone and we've got a, a router. Um, okay, so, so you had spacing set up for that. Uh, we've talked the uh, exhibitors hall. Were you guys doing panels rooms? Were you doing video game rooms? Were you doing anything like that? We, uh, we, we were gonna do probably three or four larger panel rooms. Um, and those were one of the biggest challenges, honestly, because a panel room uh, that under normal circumstances, we could put 800 chairs in, we can now put 120 chairs in. And so okay. for us, that was one of the, the real things that spurred us early on, making sure that we had the digital capabilities was because um, we normally have 140 panels over the course of a weekend. And, right. um, and so we didn't want to disappoint people and, and have such low capacity even on the high demand panels. And so that became a big reason why we had to figure out the streaming piece early on. Um, one of the things we talked about throughout this whole thing, Chris, is, you know, your capacities and even drop your capacities, drop your capacities, drop your capacities. I guess the question that's sort of looming there in, in, in the air as we're in our last nine minutes, were your budgets going to be able to handle only 25% of your total revenue? Ken beat it to me. My my approach was yeah. the same thing, which is you're describing so much more labor. Right. Yeah, that too. I wasn't going to get to that. Yeah, well, that's the impact. It's the same, almost the same right. question in a different direction, which is, you know, everything you're describing is ideal. However, from a show operating standpoint, all that goes in my head is, hey, I'm used to my guy that's checking your wristband. Awesome. But now it's who's taking the temperature? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? A cleaning crew that you have to pay to come in. And, you know, especially if cleaning crew on staff, like you said, you're cleaning your green rooms between things. How did your labor impact uh, or, or just overall your budget impact is, is kind of a, a shift on your P&L to do something like this? Yeah, it had a huge impact. And, I, and when I say from the very early days in March or April, when we asked ourselves, is this possible? Part of the answer to is it possible is, is can we make any money at it? Is, right. We're, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're a small local business. I mean, we're a locally owned um, you know, we're a small little company with, you know, 10 or 15 partners and we kind of run this ourselves. So um, that became one of the considerations. And I think that's where the, the aha was the two sessions a day that we realized if we had two sessions a day, but the density okay. was so much lower that you could do a lot more when you were there, that we could still deliver a day's worth of value in a five or six hour session. Um, and the average attendee, because we do post surveys with folks, the average person um, only stays for five or six hours. So if we could make it the right five or six hour experience, um, so we weren't um, we weren't changing our prices, but we were now having two sessions a day instead of one. And so that allowed us to have the capacity of guests coming in, okay. but a quality of guest experience so that they would be, you know, they would say, well, that I, I had an amazing time for six hours and that cost me $45. And, you know, that's the price value I was looking for. And I got well, to see- this person, this person, this autograph, and I and I bought all my my uh, Christmas presents. And that's and that's where I brought up even in, earlier on. That's why I was trying to ask, ask, and I was working the numbers in my head, which is if you're 120 turnstile ballpark, you're probably 60 unique. It's usually a 50 percent ratio right, when you right, do right, right. slower Sunday, slower Sunday, peak Saturday. So based on your math of hey, we're hitting about 10k per session. You have six, 60 sessions or six sessions. You're hitting those 60 uniques, which is damn near close budgeting to what you have for the original. So that should theoretically work. And you said you crunched all the numbers and, and as long as that operator, you did yeah. it. Um, we, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have been super profitable. We, we no, wouldn't no. Have even, and, and we thought it was worth doing if we could, you know, be even a little bit north of breaking even. Um, mm -hmm. But we, we weren't doing it because, you know, we were making a ton of money. We were doing it because we thought it was the right thing to do. And um, and that we could do it 
and turn a profit. Um, but it definitely would not have been, uh, you know, what what you would consider to be an ideal profit margin because we were doubling security, we were doubling the claim, right. yeah. we were tri tripling, you know, the entrances because you just can't do it without that. Um, and um, but that was okay. I mean, that was at the end of the day, we balanced all those elements and we thought we could do. Um, look, I'll still say to this second, I if if the guidelines had come down from the governor differently and and this city makes it to red and we had been able to execute the show, I have not one smidge of doubt that we would have done a great show that people would have loved and it would have been completely safe. Um, well, sounds and, like it. and that the convention center staff and the, and the mayor's office and the Department of Public Health all would have been part of saying this plan worked. Well, and, and it, so the, the unfortunate byproduct of all this which I, I appeared on another show a couple of weeks ago and had a promoter try to argue with me on this is um, the writing is on the wall, unfortunately, which is the cost of operating is going to shift when this is all done. So right. right now people are like, Oh, I can get a cheap flight right now. And it's because, you know, uh, you described it perfectly. I want to prove that I can make it work. I want to prove that I can make it work successfully, safely and enjoyable. Then I need to look at the P and L more closely in the future. And I think what we're going to see is kind of a shift in pricing in the future for, uh, you know, things that we've taken for granted a certain way, you know, our flights, you know, travel, I'll, I'll offer entertainment, things like that. I'll offer an alternative thought, um, Tom, okay. I think, I think the onus is on us as an organizer to find mm -hmm. new, new sources of revenue that don't mean just add, you know, double the ticket price. So I think, I think as you look at hybrid um, live digital events, the yes. thing that we need to figure out is how do you monetize the digital right, side? Right, exactly. How do you bring in not yeah. 3,000 people on digital, but 50,000 people on digital? How do you mm -hmm. create a compelling shopping experience that goes along with that so that your exhibitors are making 20% of their revenue from the online store and 80% from the physical store? I think all of that, as we look at how things, how quickly things have changed in the digital economy in the last 12 months, I think that's what, what's going to make the difference. You, you have to charge a fair price for the ticket. You have to make sure yes. that the guest has a tremendous experience and that over 90% of them go home saying, that was amazing, I'm gonna come back and recommend it to my friends. And, and you can't raise prices 50% and do that. Right. We, no, need no. To, we need to figure out how to monetize the digital side of it so that everybody's experiencing it at a, at a really high value proposition. So, so in a nutshell, you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, the future is, the future for the success of this style show is going to hinge on successful integration of a new element, which has to be digital and it has to be monetized in order to, you know, maintain uh, yeah. cost, co cost availability for a wide spectrum. We don't want to turn this into, you know, you, you, kind of the old joke about baseball. He's able to get a baseball ticket for five bucks. Now I got to pay way too much and it's cut. People out of sport. And we don't, yeah. yeah. And we, we don't want to cut people out of, availability to these events anymore this is this is absolutely yeah i mean i think that's where we just have to be sharper and smarter and more clever about how we we do that and i think that that's it's that it's that hybrid live digital experience um that will allow that to happen and i think that absolutely has to be the future of the business because we, we have to deliver this has to be an experience that anybody can go and enjoy because it's about fans it's about yes. you know and, and, and it's also every con in every city has, has elements about it that are so unique to that city and they want to keep that uniqueness and they mm -hmm. should. And, and so we just have to find a way to expand the, the availability and the access and the footprint in a way digitally that um, we can have a terrific live experience and now let more people experience it, some in person and some, some online. Chris, take us home. What's in the future for uh, LA Comic Con 2021? Well, I mean, we're we we're looking forward to next year. I mean, we were very fortunate. We had some 99% um, of our exhibitors have already confirmed they're coming to the show in September. Um, we had great talent, as I said, like Frank Miller and Tom Welling and Zachary Levi. They're all coming next year. So in a way, it's kind of nice for us that we're looking almost a year in the future, but we already have 70% of the booths sold and some terrific talent coming. And normally that doesn't come dream. together for another six <laughs> right, months. Yeah. That's right. a promoter's yeah. dream. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, so now I think we're really looking to, um, we're looking to enhance those digital elements. Um, we're looking to see um, how, you know, how we add more talent to that and do it sooner. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we'll just continue to get feedback from the fans on what they want, what, they're, what they'll feel safe doing. How do we create an environment that'll make 
a bunch of them comfortable to come and have a really fun time with us. And then respect the people that don't feel comfortable doing that and give them a digital opportunity to join us as well. Perfect. Chris, thanks again, everybody. LA Comic Con coming back in 2021. The, the big show that almost happened this year, uh, but amazing plans that they laid out. Uh, would have liked to have seen it happen, but we don't know where we're going to be next year. So we might still get to see it in that exact format. I hope either in way, September you'll be with us in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Chris, <laughs> thanks again. Thanks everybody for watching. And uh, that's our one hour. So we're going to say good night. Thanks, guys. Take care, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Convention Nerds. The Convention Nerds logo was designed by artist Caitlin Jane. Convention Nerds is a presentation of Wasabi Anime. This recording is copyright 2020 Green Mustard Entertainment Inc. To learn more about the show, visit greenmustard.com forward slash convention nerds.